The Mikado. This is the Gilbert and Sullivan Savoy opera that almost didn't happen. Sullivan had decided that he wanted to write serious music and no more light music, as he thought of it. He wrote to William Schwenk Gilbert, I have been continually keeping down the music in order that not one syllable should be lost. I should like to set a story of human interest and probability where the humorous words would come in a humorous and not a serious situation, and where, if the situation were a tender or dramatic one, the words would be of a similar character. Not surprisingly, Gilbert was deeply hurt when he received the letter. It was also partly to do with the fact that Gilbert had already conceived the plot for what was to be the next uh, operetta. It was to be called the Magic Lozenge, and it was to be about a suite that, when sucked, would lead people to fall in love against their will. And frankly, Sullivan felt he'd had quite enough of the supernatural already in setting the sorcerer. It was Gilbert who made peace. He put out an olive branch and wrote back to Sullivan, am I to understand that if I construct another plot in which no supernatural element occurs, you will undertake to set it? A consistent plot, free from anachronisms, constructed in perfect good faith and to the best of my ability? And indeed, peace broke out. And on the 20th of May, 1884, Gilbert sent Sullivan a sketch of the plot of the Mikado. The rest, you might say, is astonishing theatre history. The opera opened, or the operetta opened, on March the 14th, 1885, and it ran at the Savoy Theatre for an astonishing 672 performances. This was the second longest run for any work of musical theatre and one of the longest runs of any theatre piece up to that time. Indeed, a smash hit on their hands. Before the end of 1885, it was estimated that at least 150 other companies were performing the Mikado in Europe and across the Atlantic in America. The world had gone Mikado mad. And indeed, the Mikado, as many of you will know, remains the most frequently performed of all the Savoy operas. Now, the town of Titipu, of course, has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Japan. However, Gilbert, concerned to create authenticity because he was both the show's director as well as its librettist, uh, looking for authenticity in the setting, the costumes, the movement and the gestures of the actors, went all the way down to Knightsbridge to where there was a Japanese village which was here as a kind of tourist attraction between 1885 and 1887. It had come partly, of course, because of the opening up of Japan, but because there was a kind of late Victorian obsession with all things Japanese. These Japanese that Gilbert borrowed were to advise the production and indeed to coach the actors, the singers, in the way in which they ought to behave and indeed wear what were hoped to be authentic costumes. And indeed, the directors and native inhabitants of the village were thanked in the programme that was distributed on the first night of the Mikado. As for Sullivan, he too did his duty by the Japanese. He inserted into his score as Miyasama a version of a Japanese military march song called Tonyarabushi, composed in the Meiji era. And if that's familiar, when you hear it tonight, and indeed if you know the score well, uh, that's because you've also heard it in Puccini's Madama Butterfly. Puccini also borrowed it, and probably borrowed it, actually from the copy of the score of the Mikado that we know he had in the library at Torre del Lago. The characters' names in the libretto are, of course, not Japanese either. They're really based so much in Gilbert on English baby talk. So Nankipu is baby talk for handkerchief. 
Some Japanese critics saw the depiction of the title character, the Mikado himself, as deeply disrespectful, since the representation of the revered Meiji emperor was prohibited in Japanese theater. However, the Japanese prince, Komatsu Akahito, who saw a production in 1886 in London, took no offense at all. And when Prince Fushimi Sadanaru made a state visit in 1907, the British government decided to ban performances of the Mikado in London for six weeks, terrified that on this official visit, the Japanese might be offended. But the maneuver completely backfired because the prince complained that one of the principal reasons of his coming on this visit was in fact to see the Mikado while he was here. Indeed, a Japanese journalist covering the prince's stay attended a prescribed performance and confessed himself deeply and pleasingly disappointed. Expecting real insults to his country, he found, he said, only bright music and much fun. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight with us to tell us about making bright music and much fun here at the Colosseum and this revival of the Mikado. We've Gonzalo Acosta, who's the associate leader of the English National Opera Orchestra, and the baritone William Robert Allenby, who's covering the road of Coco and who's going to perform music from the opera in a while with Chris Hopkins, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Our fourth guest tonight is Jonathan Manners, who is the head of English National Opera Music Administration. Would you please welcome Jonathan Manners? Jonathan, I've been bound to ask you first, what are the chief duties of the Head of Music Administration? Um, so primarily I look after the, the orchestra, the chorus, uh, the music library um, and their duties with surtitling, um, the music staff, um, all the repetitors and then I work closely with the uh, Head of Music, Martin Fitzpatrick and of course Ed Gardner and all his duties within the company. And so, presumably you're also looking after the library as well. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. yeah. What kind of background do you need to do this job? <laughs> I don't know, really. I think I found it by accident. I, I've worked in the profession since I left music college. I went to music college as a, as a counter-tenor. Um, and whilst I was there, I realised that uh, a lot of the main productions we were doing didn't have counter-tenor parts, and I felt left out, so I offered uh, to... Uh, work as company stage manager for those and that's how I got into the industry and I've, I've moved between uh, a couple of companies before coming to ENO in 2009 as orchestra manager and I've been in this job uh, since July. Well, who were you with before you came here? Um, I was with John Elliott Gardner and the Monteverdi Choir and Orchestra. Um, I was the record label manager uh, for Soli Deo Gloria concerned with putting out the Bach Cantatas and I was the tour manager there as well so from touring uh, a lot of rock music, which was fantastic, it's been very nice to work at A equals 440 at uh, the Coliseum for the last three years. Must be very nice, actually, to have an office. I should think if you're working for John Elliott Gardner on the road, you were living out of a suitcase. Yeah, and, uh, you know, wherever your hat was was your home for those for those two years. So it was it was incredibly tough work. And so it's, it's really nice to have a base in central London where you are every day. And what are the key issues that you have to keep uppermost in your mind with all these various aspects of musical life in the Colosseum in your command? Well, I think especially at the moment, you're always juggling um, uh, finances, but also having to justify those against um, the artistic merits of what you're trying to do. Uh, you know, 
foremost for me is I work for the music department and we need to produce the best possible work. And at times there are conflicting interests with budget, so you have to try and weigh up the importance of what you're trying to do artistically against uh, you know, the coffers which can be tough. Someone once said to me that the core of an opera house is the orchestra and the chorus. You can get rid of the rest, but that's all you need. Is that true? I'm on the record, aren't I? Um, um, I would say that they are the backbone of the company. Yeah, I mean, of course, we have wonderful technical departments and everyone is important here, but artistically, to work in a house that has uh, a fantastic core orchestra and chorus doing what they do, and it's the versatility of their work. I remember in my first season having come from Monteverdi, where you'd go on tour and you'd do the same piece of Bach on tour for three months, and then you'd come here and we were doing Bartok and Stravinsky on one night, Handel on the next, Puccini on the next, and it, it's quite incredible how you can make that gear change, and it's a seismic gear change on a daily basis. Well, you only have to have been in the house over the last, I suppose, two weeks to have seen a, a modest example of that gear change, to move from Carmen yep. uh, to the Mikado. Mm -hmm. and both for chorus and orchestra is a pretty big yeah, Jones. absolutely, and don't forget Pilgrim's Progress. I think yeah. that Vaughan Williams. I think it's it's incredible, and but I think that is what the musicians thrive on. They thrive on that versatility. It would be very boring to go off and do three months of doing the same project every night, and that's that's what makes this job so interesting. Is that you can be doing one of these things in a performance in the evening, and then the next morning you're rehearsing for a, a totally new genre and all the all the stylistic changes that that uh, encompasses. Does that make um, choristers in an opera house and members of the orchestra rather different animals than they might be in other places? I would say that working here comes with its own set of challenges. I think certainly it's very different from the orchestra point of view, working in a pit as opposed to being on stage. And I think that a lot of people find that very strange. And the, the art of accompaniment, which is what the orchestra do for the majority of the time, and the, and the rubato that you find in opera that you wouldn't find in any other repertoire um, is incredible. So I think that there are huge differences. Give us an idea of what your seven days in the full speed of a season is. I mean, as you say, three, three operas on stage at the moment. Yep. Um, you're going to have a little break, but then there'll be at least two or three back sure. on stage after Christmas. What's your week like? Well, as you'd imagine, they're all different. But um, I will always try to make sure that I see the, the, the core ensembles uh, a couple of times a week, so I'll go into rehearsals. And I think that uh, the Zitz rehearsals, when we have... Uh, uh, the cast together with the orchestra and the chorus for the first time in, in a musical sense um, are always very important, those rehearsals. But, I mean, generally I will be... Uh, my job now, now I'm not orchestra manager, is much more office-based. So I will uh, be in the office for the majority of the time and working with my departments and looking at budgets for future productions, uh, looking at rotors for the various uh, ensembles because, of course, one of the challenges is that it, there are parts of the season that are very difficult if you are doing incredibly difficult taxing music you need to make sure that players where possible get a break so we're always looking at ways to to make the working life uh, of the musician uh, as as straightforward as possible so uh, i'll spend a lot of time doing that as well and a lot of forward planning and working with ed gardner and martin fitzpatrick at the music department and uh, looking at personnel 
musicians that we're getting in for the future. So it's, it, it's varied and it's broad. Do you sit on in all, uh, auditions? Uh, I did as orchestra manager, and at the moment we have uh, some chorus auditions, and I've sat, I, I have been in on those. I think it's interesting to see the kind of people that Ian attracts, who who want to come in and, and see their uh, the, the strengths and, and what they bring. So it's very interesting. Yeah. When, when you're planning, I mean, and you're let's say you're doing uh, an entirely new piece of work with really quite big orchestral mm-hmm. challenges and indeed choral challenges too. Um, is it always easy to persuade um, the others within the team that you will need the time, you'll need space uh, in order that people shall both be able to get the measure of, of what they're going to do but also get it under their skin? Uh, I mean, constantly, this is a very fast-moving environment, so you have to be careful to make sure that the season is spread out uh, in a certain way. And Nick Roberts, E&O's head of planning, we will sit down with the committees from the orchestra and the chorus and look at the forward planning. And, and, and the, the committees are great at saying, that's a horrible week. Look, we've got a, a long show. We might be doing some Strauss that night, and the next morning you've got us in doing three hours of Mozart or three hours of Handel, and that's, a really, that's a really tough. And can we move these rehearsals around? And we'll look where possible... Uh, to do that and also I mean nowadays something that everyone working in music has to take very seriously is noise Um, especially working in a confined space like the pit Um, we have noise levels and of course if you work in a factory you can say well that person won't do more than a certain number of hours and you can't use the excuse and say can you ask them to play quieter which is what uh, health and safety advisors would like you to do so we have to look at making sure that uh, we are very aware of noise levels and, and trying to make sure that players are sat in places in the pit where they're not going to be exposed over a, a long period of time and how we can protect them. So That know, must be one of the changes that's come about mm-hmm. since, since you've been involved in, yep. in, in, in music management. Other changes too that you've noticed that have made life more complicated in terms of planning? <sighs> I, I think um, budget-wise at the moment, you're always going to be very careful. I mean, the, the industry has changed so much, I think, in my lifetime. And you talk to players who are perhaps <clears throat> in the autumn of their careers and they would have come in when the CD was being invented and they would have had a, a lovely time doing a lot of work. And, of course, there, there are fewer opportunities uh, for, for musicians. So in some ways it helps in all levels because people are so enthusiastic at wanting to come and, and have great work at ENO. So that has been a change, I think, in some ways. It's, it's sad to say, but it is, it is to our advantage. We're going to see all of us signed a revival, mm-hmm. uh, the Mikado, uh, with a wonderful, honourable history in the company. Is it easier for you if it's a revival rather than a brand new work? Uh, it would be easy to be complacent with a revival, but the good thing about it is you know what's going to happen. So if you've got a new production coming in, there are so many questions. Are there stage bands? Do you tend to do the stage band from the pit? Or are they going to be backstage? Does that person go on stage to play? Whereas with a revival, we know exactly what's going on. And, and, and to be honest, the Mikado is, is one of the easiest in terms of a, a, being a company piece because you know exactly how we do it. And, and you know the, the players are, will always tell you how it is because they'll have probably done it a few more times than I will have done so yeah, looking at the set looking what the chorus have to do rival or not I mean it's still an enormously demanding show oh it is and especially because of the rake stage I think you know you can't underestimate that, that having uh, that kind of angle on the stage when you're on it as a member of the chorus if you're there doing that for a few hours it's, it's incredibly taxing 
Jonathan, thank you very much. No and stay with us. Because we'll... Jonathan Benz, thank you very much. You can see images from the show up on the screen behind. So you'll see the rake stage and some of the difficulties that face them. But we're joined now by the baritone uh, William Robert Allenby, who's covering the role of Coco, the Lord High Executioner in this revival of the Mikado, and Chris Hopkins, who's a member of the English National Opera Music Staff. 20 years ago now, I was amazed to discover that Peter Lilly, who was then Secretary of State at the Department of Social Services, made our first piece of music, the best-known number in this operetta for a great many people who'd never heard of Gilbert and Sullivan, and incurred, incidentally, the fury of his political opponents as he listed the welfare cheats who would be never missed, he hoped. Um, and 20 years on, there should be a political flavour to I have a little list. There certainly was in the version we're going to hear, which was the original version. Would you please welcome William Robert Allenby and Chris Hopkins. Ladies and gentlemen, and fellow Titipudlians, I am much touched by this reception and can only trust that by strict attention to duty, I shall ensure a continuance of those favours which it will ever be my study to deserve. If I should ever be called upon to act professionally, I am happy to think that there will be no difficulty in finding plenty of people whose loss will be a distinct gain to society at large. Yes, Sunday, it may happen that a victim must be found. I've got a little list, I've got a little list of society offenders who might well be underground and who never would be missed, who never would be missed. There's the pestilential nuisances who write for autographs and people who have flabby hands and irritating laughs or children who are up in dates and floor them with you flat or persons who in shaking hands shake hands with you like that. And all third persons who in spoiling tete-a-tetes insist They'd none of them be missed They'd none of them be missed There's the banjo serenader And the others of his race And the piano organist I've got him on the list And the people who eat peppermint And puff it in your face They never would be missed they never would be missed. Then the idiot who praises with enthusiastic tone all centuries but this and every country but his own. And the lady from the provinces who dresses like a guy and who doesn't think she dances would but rather like to try. And that singular anomaly, the lady novelist, I don't think she'd be missed. I've got her on the list. <laughs> That nice Aprius nuisance who just now is rather rife, the judicial humorist. I've got him on the list. All funny fellows, comic men, and clowns of private life. They'd none of them be missed. They'd none of them be missed. And a pop athletic statesman of a compromising sign, such as what you call him, Thingamy Bob, and likewise, never mind. And and what's his name, and also, you know who. The task of filling up the blanks I'd rather leave to you. But it really doesn't matter whom you put upon the list, for they'd none of them be missed, 
they'd none of them be missed. You may put them on the list, you may put them on the list, and they'll none of them be missed, they'll none of them be missed. I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, that, that this is the first time you've been lucky enough to have uh, an artist in costume. So, a first. Thank you very much indeed. Um, what do we like so much, do you think, about Coco as a character, William? Well, I think I think he's wonderful because he takes himself terribly seriously and he gets himself in the most ridiculous predicaments. You know, he thinks he's got everything solved. Oh, excuse me, like I do with this microphone. He um, thinks he's got everything solved because, in fact, um, he's got three wards, three young girls all lined up to be him. He's a chancer, he was a cheap tailor, and suddenly he's been promoted to the highest status, the Lord High Executioner. And he's got these three girls, and he's picked the prettiest and the most sweetest one of all, called Yum Yum, who is going to be his ward, and she's, he's going to marry her. And things tend to just become more and more problematic, and the plot gets more and more complicated when we find out, of course, that Nanki Poo, the tenor, who ends up with the girl, which is always the way in most of the things I'm in these days. <laughs> Nanki Poo um, actually loves Yum Yum as well. And the only way to save my own life in the end is to marry the Gilbert and Sullivan traditional sort of warhorse character of the contralto elderly lady that has designs on the younger tenor. And in the end, Coco has to attempt to seduce her into marrying him. And he says, but my good girl, have you seen her? She's something appalling. But he gets himself into all these situations. I think he, he goes through the whole gamut of emotions. And really, if it's played well, I think the audience should be laughing at the situation that he finds himself in, but he should be playing it straight down the line so that you really believe he's in the scrapes. Rather, a bit like Captain Mannering or something, you know, where he gets himself in these ridiculous situations, but you completely believe he's there. But, but he and hasn't got the kind of pomposity of Captain Mandarin. He doesn't stand upon his dignity, which makes no, no, him no. very appealing. No, I mean, Pooh Bar does that, doesn't he? Yes. The other character who's Lord High Everything, you know, he's got all the, all the different services. So, yes, I say, because of the cheap tailor thing, it's an interesting undercurrent, because what we have, particularly in this production, which I think is wonderful, is how, you know, when he's addressing the people, ladies and gentlemen, but then as soon as he's actually put in a situation where he drops the facade of this unusually high office that he hasn't really deserved, he says, but my good girl, have you seen him? And he goes back to the sort of working class roots. So you see the, the, the two things at once, which makes it very funny, I think. How, how much leeway do, do Gilbert and indeed Sullivan too, in the music, give to the singer-actor who, who takes the role? I mean, is there plenty of space to make it your own? Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, um, certainly on what's on the paper, there's, there's lots of opportunities. I mean, the, the dialogue has to be adhered to pretty pretty um, rigorously, I think. But um, obviously in this production, Jonathan Miller has got a wonderful mind. You know, you tend to filtered through his concept of it. I mean, I, I was in the doily cart many years ago in, well, 1990 and 91, which seems a while ago for me. And we did a lot of what I would call a lot more straight-laced very traditional productions where everybody was, when we did Iolanthe, everybody was dressed as a fairy and period costumes which they still hire out now to the amateur companies but um this one i say we take we we still play it play it right through but it's just got as you can see with the photographs wonderful costumes and it's just set in a different era but i think the 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 situation it's like a sitcom situation comedy if it's played 
in a real sense. I think it works in any setting, really, because it's so strong a material. Can, can one talk of a kind of Savoy baritone? I mean, is there a sort of a style that you said you sang with the doily cart? I did, who, yeah. Who, you know, to some extent carried, as it were, the, uh, the, the tradition. But is it, what, what would that style be that we associate? Well, I think um, it was the traditional character actor baritone um, that played it. I, I studied at the Academy, actually, with a very fine baritone, Derek Hammond Stroud, who sadly passed away a few months ago. But he was the epitome of that. He had very clear diction, very funny on stage, not afraid to make himself look rather silly. Because Wonderful of, Bunbury, for those of us with longer members. Yes, members with, in, in Bunthorne in the Patients. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and he played Coco um, on the BBC as well. And he had, I say, there's a. There's lots of different types of baritones but there's the sort of Barry Hunks these days you know where they take the shirts from they're all big and muscly and ripply you know and that's one sort of self-regarding and play the Don Giovannis and want people to swoon but the, there's the other sort the character baritones you've got to you haven't to mind looking a little bit preposterous and having people laughing at you <laughs> but the, the, the payoff is that you can have an awful lot of fun playing that sort of repertoire and I think you have to keep the voice quite light and really play off the words and sell the ideas rather than just making reams of tone um, like some of the upper, other repertoire that we might do. I was reminded last week just how long this role is. I mean, you're virtually never off stage as Keiko. No, no, you? there's a wonderful bit, one of my loveliest moments in the rehearsals is when Coco finally rushes off at the beginning of Act 1 finale and then he <laughs> doesn't come back on again till Act 2 because you are on. You have reams and reams of dialogue and then he's back in again, and he sings a little. You said he sings a little bit um, throughout, but because it's it's a real character role, he often it tends to come in on dialogue lines rather than you know when you think of Barbara Seville or something with the Figaro, he'll come in la 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 la, la and he presents himself with a song, whereas with this he always presents himself with dialogue as a setup for the sort of sitcom aspect of the music to get themselves into how then the music plays itself out. So it's a very different way of working, but um, I, I enjoy doing these kind of Do you have to pace yourself carefully for it? Um, you do in a funny, in funny kind of way. I mean, as in with rehearsals, it's very tiring because you can you know, do six hours a day and six hours of doing... If you're on a section of dialogue where he's very upset or whatever, it's very tiring on the voice to do that projection all the time. But in the scheme of things, in a funny kind of way, I haven't played Coco completely on stage yet. Um, and unless I get a phone call this evening, suddenly saying, I'm on, I won't do probably. But um, I would uh, I imagine with a lot of roles that I have done, which have lots of dialogue, once you get into the shows, you find a way of pacing it and it's not quite as arduous as doing day after day of rehearsals because your voice just needs time to rest between. As, as, as I said at the very beginning of my introduction, Sullivan uh, got this, 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 wrote this terrible letter, I think, to Gilbert, <laughs> saying he was fed up of keeping his music under control so we could hear the words. Yes. But the words do matter. And in the end, we need to hear clearly what you sing. Yes, and I, I, think, um, I think you do particularly, firstly because it's in English, um, and secondly, because there's so much dialogue um, you know, there is obviously orchestral writing which, in a way, the vocal line is part of the ensemble, like an orchestral experience just soaring over the top. But it, I think because there's so much dialogue and it really is music theatre, that if you had lots of dialogue where everybody could tell what you were reaching at that point in the plot, to suddenly then go into a song that was written in such a style that then that halted 
it would be a little bit arch, wouldn't it? And you wouldn't really carry the story through in the way that it was intended. You're going to give us another taste of cocoa. What are you going to sing next? I am. Well, I, I alluded to Katisha earlier, an elderly lady who has designs and on the young Nanki Poo, who, of course, wants to marry Yum Yum, who I was going to marry. So uh, towards the end of the opera, he has to... Unfortunately for him, in his perception, woo her with a little song. And the only thing he could think of to sing about was a little bird he used to know quite intimately. It is, of course, the very famous Titwillow. Terrific. Thank you very much, Tila. Let's have little Titwillow. On a tree by a river, a little tom-tit sang willow, tit-willow, tit-willow. And I said to him, Dickie Bird, why do you sit singing willow, tit-willow, tit-willow? Is it weakness of intellect, birdie, I cried, or a rather tough worm in your little inside? With a shake of his poor little head, he replied, Oh, willow, tit-willow, tit-willow. He slapped at his chest as he sat on that bough, singing willow. Tit willow, tit willow, and a cold perspiration bespeckled his brow. Oh, willow, tit willow, tit willow. He sobbed and he sighed, and a gurgle he gave. Then he plunged himself into the billowy wave. And an echo arose from the soul he sighed's grave. Oh, willow. Tit will, tit will. <laughs> now I feel just as sure as I'm sure that my name isn't Willow, Tit Willow, Tit Willow. That was blighted affection that made him exclaim, Oh, Willow, Tit Willow, Tit Willow. So if you remain callous and obdurate, I shall perish as he did, and you will know why. Though I probably shall not exclaim as I die. Oh, willow, tit willow, tit Thank you both very, very much indeed. Um, our fourth guest this evening is Gonzalo Acosta, who is the associate leader of the English National Opera Auction. Would you please welcome Gonzalo Acosta? Gonzalo, when you're um, leading the orchestra, what in fact does the leader do? It's rather obvious to say, but obviously you have to be a very fine player. Uh, <laughs> And you, you have to do your homework. Uh, very often you have to have the Boeings uh, prepared for the rest of the section in advance. 
Uh, I sometimes like to meet up with a conductor as well before the first rehearsal so we have a game plan ready for the first rehearsal so I can understand what he's after, he or she, um, so we can start off running in the first rehearsal. So that's the first thing. But I think more importantly, um, it's like a channel between conductor and orchestra. Um, there are occasions where we may have a, a less experienced conductor, someone who doesn't have very good use of English language perhaps, um, or someone who's pressed for time. So the leader wouldn't necessarily um, step in and help to interpret some of the requests from the conductor for, for my colleagues in the orchestra. Uh, sometimes when they're running out of time, the leader can shiver him along a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we, we really do run out of time, you know. Um, and of course, when we're repeating things, uh, eight, 10, 12 shows, it's also important that the leader is always at the top of his game and keeps the colleagues inspired. Do, do you also, as leader, uh, obviously you're listening to everybody else, can you also talk about things like balance? Can you also talk about, about um, sections of the orchestra quietly to the conductor as another pair of ears? Yes, sometimes you can, you can advise him. Obviously, he has uh, some very good advisors in the house. We have music staff who are out in the auditorium listening closely. But with some productions, I've done them many times, so I may be able to offer the odd suggestion here and there, yes. Jonathan was talking earlier about the fact that you all sit in the dark, um, or we don't see you when you're in the semi-dark with lights, and it's very different than if you were playing in a symphony orchestra on a concert platform. I mean, do you like the idea of, of being only, you know, half seen in this kind of sepulchral hole? It's, it's a very different role to, to playing on stage. I mean, some musicians prefer to be unseen. Perhaps they like a little less pressure, you know, less spotlight. Um, but it's a very different animal, a pit orchestra to a symphony orchestra. If you think in a typical symphony orchestra concert, you'd be accompanying for maybe a concerto 25, 30 minutes. You're talking about accompanying for three hours plus in the pit here. So the musicians have to have their antenna up all the time. And I mean all the time because very often things are different every night. I mean, it can be a singer not on form or decides to hang on to a note longer than usual or aspects of the production could be slightly different, you know. So there's never a plain sailing performance. That's what makes it very challenging and, and interesting, really. I should have asked you the same question I asked Jonathan. I mean, how do you become a leader? I mean, obviously, talent plays an enormous role, uh, but, but apart from that... <laughs> It's not something you can necessarily learn, I don't think. I think some people emerge from a young age already sitting at the front of youth orchestras, mm. uh, quietly helping their, their peers with a fingering here or there or something, and quite soon you realise, actually, that's what I want to do. Mm. Uh, and I think conductors spot that, and so they put you in those leading places. Um, as a leader, you do have to have uh, another uh, string to your bow, as it were. You have to be as good as a soloist, really. Yeah. Uh, as I said earlier on, you could be accompanying for three hours, you know, two hours, 50 minutes, we'll be playing with the ranks and everything and, and the, the mix of the sound. And then somehow you have to play this beautiful, you know, five minute solo or less quite often, you know, quite often when the, when the soprano is about to die, it's very quiet and it has to sound as good as, you know, a top world-class soloist. And I've often thought that because it's not only that you have to have the quality to play the solo, but in a sense you get none of the sort of support that a soloist gets in the concert hall, where, where we all know that you're the soloist, we all know you're expected to play at the top of your game. 
what I don't know what you mean by support. I think everyone can hear in 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 the orchestra. It's very point uh, in the audience. It's a very poignant moment. It's the emotional support of an audience seeing you. I was thinking of more. Maybe it doesn't relate. Maybe I don't yearn for that. Modesty. Modesty. Are there particular works in the repertoire that you look forward to to leading? Well, the great thing about English National Opera is that th there's no typical production. I mean, I'm sure the audience know that. We have traditional things, we have contemporary music, we have um, things in other theatres, uh, in the Young Vic. And we also did a very interesting thing out in, in the Docklands uh, last year, the Duchess of Malfi, uh, which was very unusual. We were, it was basically an opera ha happening all over the building at the same time, and the audience had the choice of being in this scene or that scene, and the orchestra was split up in different sections. And I, as many other musicians, had to stand up, do their scene, walk off somewhere else, do another scene. Um, and that had different challenges as well. We, most of the time it was in the dark. We all had to wear masks. Um, in the dark there was smoke, all sorts of things. But it was fascinating. I don't, I don't think... Um, do you think that must be the most challenging thing you've done? As, as, as yes. Um, as I say, I mean, you're, you're, every, every room had a different acoustic. Um, some, sometimes there were four people there, sometimes there were 54 people watching, you know, sometimes they were sitting close to you. We did one scene which was on a in a church scene, we had actual church pews, and I was playing my solo and there was somebody sitting right next to me. <laughs> which was fine, because they couldn't tell if I was sweaty or not, because I had my mask on. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something special about leading the orchestra as you will tonight in Gilbert and Sullivan? Well. Uh, there's no point in, in saying that Gilbert and Sullivan is any different to any other, uh, what you'd call a serious opera, because it's just as difficult and just as challenging as maybe playing Barbara Seville or Mozart. Uh, I compare those two because it's just as exacting music as, um, as those, those two composers. Very different to something like Wagner, where you get swept along and, and the edges can be a little bit blurred and the, the, the overall effect is fine. But with, with um, Mikado, these type of operas, the, the, the string writing is very exacting and very precise. And there again, the, the leader's role perhaps is more active as well in, in demonstrating the, the attack, the articulation to your colleagues, more so than, say, in Wagner or Traviata. Are there things that you particularly like about the score from Mikado? Uh, just that. The, the, the string writing is, is, is quite exposed, which is a challenge as well, um, but very neat and tidy. So it's a as as uh, as Coco says, it's a useful discipline to play in that manner. So it's it's very challenging. An extraordinary range of musics too within one piece, all the way from the kind of mock ballad of wandering minstrel to the madrigal that brightly dawns our wedding day. I mean, you're being required to play all sorts of different styles within the piece itself. Um, yes, I mean that's 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 what we we love doing. I think Jonathan mentioned we have different styles in different composers. Um, there's no real difference in technique, really, I think. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the famous roving microphone, and here's an opportunity, if you would like to ask our guests, our quartet <laughs> of guests, any questions. It's beginning to rove. Put your hand up, catch my eye, and, and I will... Yes, in the front row. I've enjoyed the uh, variety that uh, English National Opera has put on in, in its various performances, but I wonder, is there any chance of having more um, operettas um, I was thinking perhaps some of the lesser-known Gilbert Sullivan, like Princess Ida in Utopia Limited, or some other early 20th century operators like uh, the Arcadians uh, and, and Veronique, for example. I'll, I'll certainly pass that on. I mean, I think 
obviously programming is not an area I'm involved in, but at the moment it's it, it's a real it's a real um, balancing act with trying to find things that are going to um, excite new audiences at the same time as keeping our core audience uh, involved with ENO and trying to find ways to, to fill the theatre as much as possible. But um, I'll certainly pass that on. Another question. Yes, in the, in the almost background, the penultimate row, one might say. Um, this is a, a question for Coco, really. Um, I just wondered whether um, you were this very kind of formidable, you know, behold the Lord High Executioner kind of entry on the stage. Yeah. Does that kind of help you get into the character the minute you walk on the stage? <laughs> you see what I mean? Um, well, for anybody that hasn't seen it, I won't give too much away, but in a very Jonathan Miller <laughs> style, he, they have the big entrance, behold the Lord, hi, everybody's, people fading, confetti in the air, all leaning towards him, and then, unfortunately, he doesn't manage it, so <laughs> he doesn't come in to start with, so it's like a false entry, so, yeah, but, I mean, so it ends up becoming a gag, really, in many ways, but, yeah, I mean, it's beautifully, beautifully presented to give you everything you sort of, if, as I said before, if you play it, for what it is at each moment you kind of know you're doing the ladies and gentlemen and then the catish of it and then they're trying to seduce somebody you know so i mean it's lovely that it, if you play it very cleanly very clear the audience go go along with you and they can they go through all your trials and tribulations really yeah but it's a fantastic piece of music that coco comes into isn't it mm -hmm. very majestic it sort of reminds me of the aida sort of triumphal march or something that he's gone for you know well that's presumably again uh, sullivan's ear for musical parody yes. we, often, we often think that gilbert is the witty clever one but sullivan's mm, music mm, is full mm. of delicious little jokes if you listen closely I yes think. indeed mm. and just the styling and the orchestration and just the way in the way that is written it just gives a grandiose structure to that but and then the madrigal suddenly they're, they're, they're very much an accompanying figure aren't they and a lot of it's a cappella without the orchestra and just etches it in it's very clever writing mm. it's quite extreme but it gives the, the hierarchy of the status. And the Mikado, again, with, you know, the big drums when the Mikado makes the entrance, it's wonderfully idiomatic, really, I think. Also, the Madrigal reminds us, of course, that, that in a way how well-tuned Sullivan's ears were to what was actually happening around him, the rediscovery of earlier music of that kind of form, too. I mean, one's admiration for Sullivan grows the pace, I think. Another question before I keep on talking. Who else would like to ask a question? At the back first and then we'll come to you madam. Uh, just a question about staging. Um, anyone who's, who's ever uh, spent any time in the London theatre wouldn't have been surprised uh, at the Olympic opening ceremony which was really a tribute to, to the staging in the British theatre, although I haven't heard anybody say it. I've seen horses, dogs, doves, cars, <laughs> Mercedes jumped all over this season. How competitive uh, behind the scenes is staging um, in London theatre and opera in particular? Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think that uh, stage management and technical staff in London theatres are probably the best in the world. In fact, there's no probably about it. They are. Um, and 
I can talk about here specifically, um, what makes it amazing at ENO is, is that the art of actually changing sets hasn't changed, I'd say, since the theatre was built, whereas our colleagues across the road have got uh, a wonderful ability now just that, that all the sets sit on trucks and that after a show you can just, they just mechanically go on and there's there's very little actual changeover that happens in an ENO. It's a physical process and it, it, talk about a living theatre, I think that, you know, you'd say that... Um, 23.5 hours of the day, this theatre, there are people on stage working. I mean, as soon as the show's finished, stuff goes out and then they're physically bringing something else back in. And I think that you can push you can push what you can do technically further and further, uh, obviously, as, as we become more advanced in what technology can offer, but, but, but also because things are so safe now and that, that, that we can work in a way that you can offer directors and designers pretty much the sky's the limit I'd say really and I'd certainly say that's the same in, in, in musicals as well but there is something about British technicians isn't there I oh mean, yeah they are they are everybody in Europe always admits mm. you know, what can happen a last question madam the microphone is speeding its way towards you it's there <laughs> it's a very workaday question this is sung in English obviously but do you have surtitles especially for this kind of show where the words are so important and so witty? The answer is yes. Great. <laughs> you, you won't have to strain your ear too much. This is it, but thank you very much indeed. Thank you for all of you for being here and being part of what is the uh, last of the present run of these pre-performance talks. Uh, like you, we're going to have Christmas, but we're going to return in the new year and we return on the 7th of February at 5.15 as usual for a pre-performance talk about the new production of La Traviata uh, in this house. In the meantime, can I say thank you to our four guests, Jonathan Manners, William Allenby, uh, Chris Hopkins and Gonzalo Acosta. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>